Well, I'm thanking you for being here today, and I'm going to encourage you. Let's get your Bibles out right now. There should be nothing else that you do at the beginning of a sermon than get your Bibles out and get ready to feed and to dine on the Word of God. We're going to eat deeply today. We're going to hopefully really be encouraged to be able to understand what does this beatitude mean. So I was told earlier before I got up here that every time I start one of these Beatitude sermons, they're thinking of Monty Python, Life of Brian, I believe it is. Blessed are the cheesemakers. How many of you know what I'm talking about? See, a bunch of car- that was just a test to see how many worldly people we have in our church. That was a really good movie, wasn't it? Well, you guys are really not a very fun crowd today, I tell you that. All right, so why don't we just get rid of the Monty Python uh, references, get right to the Word of God. And while you're doing that, Matthew chapter 5, we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount. We're looking at particularly the Beatitudes. Let me tell you what the Roman people did. The Roman people were really, really skilled at making you suffer when you were a condemned criminal. Not only did they have crucifixion, by the way, they didn't invent crucifixion, they perfected it. The Assyrian people uh, invented crucifixion. But what the Romans would sometimes do, as I've read, was that they would take a condemned criminal and either fasten a dead body on their back or tie a dead body face to face. True story. And they would have to bear that body on their own body until a horrible infection would spread. It would slowly destroy the living victim. In fact, the Roman poet Virgil wrote about this. He describes this cruel punishment. Here's his little poem. The living and the dead at his command were coupled face to face and hand to hand. Till choked with stench and loathed embrace tied, the lingering wretches pined away and died. That's really how they did this in Rome for condemned criminals. Now, here's what the tie-in to this sermon is. This is all just getting us ready for this. We all sin. In fact, if we were all being honest right now, let's say that you sat down right now across from God. And you're in the presence of that holiness. And what that's going to do for you is like a spotlight and a searchlight illuminates all your thoughts that you had this last week. All those impure desires, all the things that your eyes looked at, all the times that you were not in control of your mouth and you slandered and you gossiped, all of the insidious, very deeply intertwined moments of jealousy and envy, all of that's going to come rushing to the surface like Proverbs 20 talks about. A wise man goes down deep into the heart and brings up for you to see the motives. All of that's going to happen. And when that happens, if you don't know what to do with what you just saw, it's going to stay on you like a rotting corpse. And that has never been the way of the gospel. The way of the gospel shows you what to do. But first, we have to see. You can't confess what you do not see. You can do general, ethereal confessions. All right, and this is what a lot of us do. 
All right, God, forgive me for all the times that I sinned this week. God could care less about those prayers. That is not genuine. He is looking at particular instances, specific times that we have grieved him. And that he could do a work of grace and begin to transform us out of those kinds of sins. I think that if you reflect on this for a moment, it will dawn on you more clearly that not once in the New Testament do you ever see Jesus laughing. That bothers a lot of people. Maybe that bothers you. Let me give you a little bit of a reason why that is so. Isaiah gives us a really good peek at what this Messiah is going to be like 800 years before he was born. It says this, he was despised and rejected by men. This is Jesus, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces. What that means is that he was so unattractive, unappealing, whether that was on the cross through the flogging or maybe that was his natural born visage or appearance, we don't know, but he's going to be one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Go back and see it one more time. He was well acquainted with grief. He was a man of sorrows. It's very difficult to laugh when your heart is heavy with sorrow. And this is Jesus. He came to bear the sins of all who would trust in him. He was a man of sorrows. We see him weeping over the death of his friend Lazarus. We see him weeping when he crests the hill to see Jerusalem, the week that he is going to be crucified because their hearts were hard. They would not receive him. And so we come to this second beatitude which is all about mourning, and it's all about grief, and it necessarily, rightly, follows being poor in spirit. All of a sudden, you see your spiritual poverty. You see the sins in your heart. God's holiness has revealed it. What do you do with it? How do you get the corpse out of your life? We come to Christ for salvation with empty hands, amen? We plead for his mercy and his grace. And when we enter the kingdom of heaven, that was beatitude number one, when we enter the kingdom of heaven, we should never lose that sense that Paul had in Romans 7, nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. That ought to kill and assassinate pride. I mean, here is the most venerable apostle of the church writing that he, when he sees himself, when he sees his flesh, the leftover remnant of that which the cross must kill, that which the gospel must transform, when he sees his flesh, he says, there's nothing good that dwells in it. I got to go to war at it. But where does spiritual poverty lead? And that's what we're going to see. So I invite you to take a look at Matthew chapter 5 with me. Look at verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I'm going to give you several points, and I'm going to end up giving you seven ways to really know if your heart is godly in its sorrow. I'm going to teach you how to do that by the end of this message. 
Number one, point number one. What is the mourning? What is the grieving? What is the sorrow that Jesus means in this beatitude? Blessed are those who mourn. Now, I don't think that anybody here that's in school has ever, ever gone to school in a bad mood and told your friends when they asked, I'm just mourning today. We don't talk like this anymore. Now, some of the older of us do when we go to funerals, when we come away from somebody who has died that we really love. I mean, you, you do mourn. We do grieve. It doesn't matter what age you are. We are filled with sorrow. We just don't use the word mourn. So what does it mean when he says, blessed are those who mourn? Well, let me get a little bit of a running head start to really look at this. There seems, doesn't it, to be nothing remotely related to blessing with the word mourning. I mean, isn't that odd to your ears? Blessed are those who mourn. Have you ever gone away from a funeral going, I have been so blessed to be so full of sorrow? It just does not compute on a flesh natural level because life is hard. If you haven't realized that, believe me, you're going to realize this. It won't take long. And life can erupt in suffering and sorrow in an instant. And sorrowing, by the way, sorrow is no respecter of persons. Both righteous and the unrighteous experience it. So life can be very, very difficult. And you get to this word mourn. Well, let me just tell you this. This is a fun little tidbit of information. There's actually nine Greek words in the New Testament for the word mourn. Nine. That ought to tell you something. There's a pretty broad array that is associated with this. But this word, and I would write this down in your Bible if I were you, this word is the strongest Greek word there's available in the entire language for the word mourn. This is the most severe form of mourning. It describes mourning or grief that pierces the heart, that actually it feels like it's ripping you in half. This is the power of this kind of grief. And it's usually, almost always, connected with the death of somebody that you love. You see it in the Old Testament. It's Jacob's grief. Remember when he thought that his son Joseph, you remember the multicolored robe that he got him and his brothers sold him into slavery. They took the robe, they cut it into shreds, put blood on it from an animal. And Jacob gets this robe and he believes that Joseph had been killed by wild animals. This is the kind of mourning that he, that he experienced. It ripped his heart in half. It was used to describe the disciples' grief when Jesus died and all of their hopes seemed to vanish. In between his death and his resurrection appearances, this is what their hearts looked like. This is the mourning that they were experiencing. It rips the very fabric of your soul. Yet the word mourn is a lot more broad than we might first think. So let me give you a few ways to understand it, okay? You've got to get the understanding. I'm going to give you three ways, and they're all going to build to the third. The first two will build to the third. Here's the first way that this word can mean. It's a mourning or a sorrow that happens when we personally are suffering. Now, some of us are very well acquainted with suffering, 
Some of you have chronic diseases. Some of you have lost loved ones. Some of you have been through cancer. Some of you have lost parents as part of your loved ones. Some of you that I know have lost your children. So when you personally suffer, well, this is one form of what this mourning is. And the pages are littered with the tears of sorrow, including those of our Lord and Savior. But there's an Arab saying that goes like this. This is actually pretty interesting. You ought to go to school this week, if you're a teenager and in school or in college, and just start telling people this proverb, because it will make you sound very, very intelligent. And it's five words. All sunshine makes a desert. Now watch your friends scratch their heads, and then you get the luxury of explaining it to them. All sunshine makes a desert. In other words, times of just perpetual ease, listen, they never make a strong Christian. If you're not dealing with trials, then you're probably not growing in your faith. It's very difficult for us to grow strong in Christ if we're not experiencing opposition. There's a musician that uh, commented on a young girl one time. And this is a professional, world-renowned musician, comments on this young girl who was brought before him, and she was singing, and she possessed an absolutely beautiful voice, a nearly flawless technique. You know what this man said, this musician, this professional said about her, to this young girl, about this young girl? I'm going to quote him. She will be great when something happens to break her heart. Now, there are some of you here that have not yet had your heart broken. Thankfully, God has been allowing you to have some time and maybe a life so far of relative ease. That's not going to happen forever. And when God brings and when God allows something other than sunshine... Something that will break your heart. When he does, it's going to create in you, it will create in me a sorrow, a grief, a mourning, of which this word hints. It's personal suffering. You see, it's in sorrow that we discover the things that really do truly matter. And it's in sorrow that we are driven to the true blessings of life. It's in sorrow that you remember you cannot live on your own. You cannot handle life in your own strength. It's in sorrow that you discover the meaning of enduring faithful friendships and the depths of love. It's in sorrow that you discover whether your faith is really superficial or sincere. This is all of what sorrow will do to you. It will all drive you to the depths of your relationship with Christ and with family and friends. See, life can be terribly hard. And for Christians whom God has called to suffer, he will bring comfort. But there's a second one. There's a second way that we mourn, and it's this one. And this is actually some people in our church that it ought to be more of us. There's a mourning that happens when you see the world's injustice. The Bible's full of this. There ought to be in all Christians an eruption of concern and grief when Christians are massacred, when people are hung by the hundreds, as we've been seeing, 
when babies who are not even yet born are killed before they can even breathe this air, when women are sold into the sex trade. Listen, that ought to grieve us. It ought to create a mourning. A Christian that is untouched by that does not resemble Jesus, does not resemble Christ. We should mourn when we see our nation so determined to reject Jesus. We should mourn and our hearts should hurt when people are, are oppressed and exploited. And often, all around us, this is happening. Christians of all people should be concerned with the state of our society. Not, not only when our country is experiencing injustice, but when the world is as well. Now, there are thankfully many in churches all over the world that are driven to do something about injustice. They're driven to spend their lives. They will do extraordinary things for those who are suffering the grip of evil. And these impassioned Christians are one day going to be comforted. Listen, if that's you, and I really want to speak to you for a moment, if this is you and you are impassioned with the suffering and relieving the suffering and justice issues, listen, whether the churches around you have the same passion or not, you should be comforted because one day the God of justice will break forth and he will conquer evil. He will bring peace and his reign will be complete. Yet personal suffering, example number one, suffering all over the world, example number two, are not really what Jesus is referring to here. It's the third one. There's a mourning that happens when a Christian sees his or her sins. That's the mourning that he's talking about. Remember, it rightly follows those who are poor in spirit, meaning that they've seen their great need for the grace and the mercy of God. They've seen how, how short they fall to the glory of God. And when you see that, the only right response, the only response that the gospel of grace is going to produce in you is a heart full of sorrow, a heart full of grief, because it will move you to the one who can take it away, the one who can forgive. You see, when God shows you, your sin. When he shows me my sin, the first response must be godly sorrow and mourning. So let me ask two, two questions. Now, I really want you to listen to this. Everybody here, look at me for just a moment. If you haven't listened to much I've said so far, that's all right. Just tune in right now. Let me really ask you these two questions. First of all, and you answer it honestly, I don't know the answer for you. I only know the answer for me. You're the only one. When is the last time that you grieved over your sin that has hurt God? Now really do justice with that. Some of you might say, I don't think I've ever grieved over that. Well, at least be honest. When's the last time that you were full of sorrow because you've sinned? Now hold that question here. Let me put another one that'll kind of hold an intention. When's the last time that you really were comforted by the grace of God, which is willing to always forgive you? 
Now, I've asked you the first one. When's the last time that you were really overcome with sorrow and grief at your sin? Whether it brought tears to your literal face or tears to your soul, it ripped you. That's what the word means. It ripped your soul in shreds. Some of us may not have experienced this yet. And following that, holding intention to that, when's the last time you've really experienced the comfort and the grace of God that has convinced you, he's forgiven you of that, he's restored you to fellowship. You see, this is all of what the beatitude is talking about. The one who will be saved, the one who is a Christian, who will be a Christian, not yet, but will be a Christian, is the one who must first cry out with the Apostle Paul, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Listen, if you don't get to the point where you see that you have woefully fallen short of the glory of God, that you have sinned, that you, are, you do not deserve salvation, if you have not gotten to that, you cannot be saved. This is why spiritual poverty is beatitude number one. You must get to some level of realization that you, before God, are a sinner. And you can't fix yourself. And what that ought to produce in you is a holy grip on your soul called mourning, grief. And immediately, that heart of spiritual poverty that moved you to godly grief will be comforted by the God of grace. Thanks be, Paul says, right after he wrote, wretched man that I am, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's your comfort that will come immediately on the heels of poverty of spirit and spiritual mourning. And when you grow, now listen, now I'm going to speak to Christians, and you grow in your walk with the Lord, this doesn't end. You don't just have spiritual poverty in the beginning, see yourself as inadequate before God in and of your own flesh, and then all of a sudden be filled with self-assurance, filled with self-confidence. Listen, the more you walk with God, the deeper your faith becomes, the more you see what a sinner you are, the more you see what a holy God he is, and the more you're thankful that Jesus always bridges that gap. Jonathan Edwards, that great American pastor, theologian from the 1700s, touched off the, the great awakening in this country. He said, I have had a vastly greater sense of my own wickedness and the badness of my heart than ever before I ever, than I've ever had before my conversion. Listen, the more you walk with God, the more you're going to see that you're a sinner. The more your heart is going to break, the faster you're going to flee to the cross, and the greater the comfort you're going to experience. I will prove this to you through the Apostle Paul. You ready? Let me give you a little biographical whirlwind historical sketch of the Apostle Paul. He starts out, his first letter that he ever wrote was to Galatians. And in the very first verse, he refers to himself as an apostle. He lays claim to the highest office in the church. Now watch this. Seven years later, he now writes to the Corinthians. And he writes in there, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. Another eight years goes by. 
And he now writes the letter to the Ephesians. And in there he writes, I am the very least of all the saints. He's not even now referring to himself as an apostle. The longer you walk with God, the more you will see your sinfulness. You will see the great heights of God's grace and you will flee to the comfort of the cross. Watch this. Later, he writes the letters of Timothy and 2 Timothy. He's awaiting his execution. He knows he's about to die. And he writes this. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Do you see his attitude changing? Do you see the way that he viewed himself changing? He starts out, I'm an apostle. And then he goes, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. And then eight years later, I am the very least of all the saints. And right before he dies, I am the foremost of sinners. Now listen, Christian brother and sister, this ought to be the trajectory of your life. This ought to be the trajectory of my life. If you're not growing... And the awareness of your sinfulness and the awareness of God's holiness, the comfort that you find in his cross, you're not deepening in your faith. This is the evidence of it. The longer you walk with Jesus and the nearer you come to him, you are bound to see more clearly the standard of perfection in Christ, which will bring your life into comparison. And along with that, the more you know Jesus, the more you're going to realize the cost of your own sin, that Jesus had to die to save you. And that mourning, the word mourn, that it's in a Greek tense, by the way, you ought to write this in your Bible. I would encourage you, underline mourn, put it in your margin. It's in a Greek tense that means continuous action. That mourning ought to be on and on and on as you are awakened to a greater depth of your sinfulness, awakened to the greater heights of God's holiness, awakened to the greater wonder of the cross that will bring you even more comfort than you've ever had before. See, godly sorrow is a gift of grace. And how blessed we are when God's Spirit wakes us up to our sinfulness and the sacrifice of Jesus, and it moves us to mourn, and God will never, ever leave us there. And that's the second point. When you mourn over our sin, you will be comforted. When we mourn over our sin, we will be comforted. Look at what it says. Blessed are those who mourn, and here's your promise, for they shall, not might, might possibly Somewhat, no, this is a bedrock promise. They shall be comforted. And it's not the mourning over sin that blesses us. It's the comfort that God gives to those who mourn over sin. Now listen, have you ever experienced, uh, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever experienced the utter radical truth that divine joy and sin are not compatible have you ever harbored sin in your heart and found every time you go to pray, it's like right between you and God is that sin. And you can't get past it. You can't get around it. You have to go through it. Divine joy and sin are not compatible. Only those who mourn over their sin 
can have this joy of blessedness simply because it's only those who will ever experience forgiveness. There are those who see their sinfulness and they respond in despair. Listen, you don't know the cross if that's you. You only know half of it. You know the bad news of the gospel. You don't quite get the good news. If you see your sinfulness and you end in despair, you've got to get to the cross. And you've got to see the God who willingly died on that cross for you. He did it to save you. I have a friend who is literally sinning himself to death. And I'm not even being metaphorical with that. He's literally sinning himself to death. I don't know if he's even going to be on this planet in another couple years. Because you know why? He does not believe that God could forgive him. He does not believe that God could change his life. doesn't matter how many times I've shown him, how many sermons he's heard from me and others preach. It doesn't matter how many testimonies, how many people have come around him. He is resolute. I am below the grace of God. There is nothing he can do for me. If he doesn't change his ways, I do think he's going to die. And the only way he can change his ways is if the gospel changes him. But for every person who sees their spiritual poverty and their heart is torn in grief over it, God promises comfort. But what is that word comfort? And this is so incredible what I'm about to tell you. I'm going to tell you the best part of the word comfort, then I'm going to show you how it was used. I want you to thank Jesus, and I want you to thank the Holy Spirit. Because the word here in Matthew 5, verse 4, for comfort, is the same exact word that Paul uses in Romans to refer to the Holy Spirit and to the function of Jesus. And he does it, or not Paul, but uh, the Apostle John. He says it here, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. That's the word comfort. This is the noun form of the verb comfort that you see in the Beatitude. This is the noun form, and it's a, it's a title for the Holy Spirit. It's the function of Jesus Christ. Both of them were helpers. So immediately put that in your mind. So here we go. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. There's something in the attributes of the Spirit of God, something in the attributes of Jesus that's at play in this word comfort. But what is it? Well, let me explain it. Here's how the Greek people use this word. Very fascinating. When they invited somebody to a party, to a banquet, that's what they really call them. And it, it provides, by the way, now, that, that picture of an invitation to a banquet, it provides the great picture of those who mourn over their sin and God will never treat them as a criminal. That's what this word was used. It's the invitation Mourn, the, or comfort, the invitation to a banquet. So the Greeks used this word for mourn as an invitation to a banquet. Even more, the word was used for troops in a war who cheered each other on as they entered battle. So this is a word that was used to invigorate flagging spirits. This was a word used to be able to pick up drooping hands that are tired from swinging a sword. And Aristotle, that great philosopher, used this word to stimulate, to energize the mind or motivate a person. This is what the word comfort was used for. And finally, the word was commonly used for blowing on a spark until it erupted into a flame. 
Now let me bring all those together, ready? Only the Christian can mourn over sin. And when you do, the Spirit of God and Jesus, they will be your advocate. They will remind you of his love and their forgiveness and their help. And when you go, now listen, when you go to God with godly sorrow, not only are you reassured of the joy of having your sins forgiven and forgotten, but your hearts, here we go, your hearts are filled with courage. Your minds are stimulated to new and right thoughts. You're reinvited back to the banquet of fellowship with God. Your flickering, struggling faith gets fanned into a flame once again. This is all of what it means. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's an incredible gift and blessing from God. Some have mistaken, look at the words, shall be comforted, as only taking place at the end of their lives when they're face to face with Jesus. And it is true that final that final eternal comfort will be given to believers when they see Jesus finally. But each time the gospel brings you, brings me to spiritual poverty, you see your sin and you mourn, you grieve, your soul is ripped, you will be comforted. You will be reinvited back to fellowship. Your faith will be fanned into a flame. You will be re-energized in your mind and in your spirit. And you will understand even more deeply the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. That is true comfort. King David was one well acquainted with the comfort that comes to those who mourn over their sin. He wrote, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. You know why he's praying this, right? Because he had an affair with a woman named Bathsheba. And to cover it up, he got her pregnant. To cover it up, he kills her husband Uriah. How he does that is he puts him right in the front of the army where he is sure to be killed. And he's stewing on this Psalm 32. He's covering it, Psalm 32. And his bones, his bones are aching at night. That's what happens when you cover sin. God doesn't want us covering sins. He wants his people free. And so he wrote Psalm 51 because now he wants joy and he wants gladness. He writes in Psalm 30, You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth. You have clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. Oh, Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. He writes later in that or earlier in that psalm, Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Listen, this is the comfort that God brings when he shows you your sin, it breaks your heart, it rends your soul, and you flee to the cross for forgiveness. However, the world's sorrow can deceive us. It can fool you. And the Bible knows that. And it gives the best description of what true godly mourning and godly sorrow looks like that I've ever seen anywhere it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Can I get you to turn there with me? 2 Corinthians chapter 7, point number 3, and this is what we'll bring to the end of the sermon. There are seven evidences of godly mourning. And he says in verse 10, 2 Corinthians 7, 10, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. He's speaking to a church... It equally applies to the Christian individual. And he writes 
in verse 11. For see what earnestness. Now let me stop right there for a second. And I would encourage you to do this in your Bibles if you are there. The phrase foresee, some of your translations have behold, is a term of exclamation. It's like saying today, holy smokes. It's like saying, wow. It's so startling that we, we have to use an exclamation to be able to capture what it just did to us. Well, this is what Paul says. He's so startled by the godly grief of the Corinthians that he's making an exclamation about it. Foresee, that's what it is. What earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. What's that mean? Now, I'm going to take this part by part. There's seven evidences. Here's the first one. Foresee what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. What's the key word here? It's earnestness. What does it mean? Here it is. You ready? It means to make sober haste to make whatever changes you need to make that are necessary. You don't even pause. There's no, you know what, let me think about this and let me pray about it. Or, you know what, I'll do it next week. Or, you know, I'm not quite sure. Listen, if anybody is pausing, if they are hesitating to make the changes necessary, they are not yet mourning over their sin. They're not yet filled with godly grief that is leading to repentance. They're still evidencing worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow feels bad for things. Worldly sorrow regrets when you're caught. But godly grief regrets and feels bad and then makes immediately the changes you need to make. That's evidence number one. There's no need to consider it, no need to think on it. You pursue righteousness no matter what, no matter what the cost is to you. Evidence number two, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves. This means it's the priority to clear your name and to prove that you're no longer who you were. You're not that person who did that. You're a new person in Christ. You've distanced yourself from that sin. And I want to clear my name. I don't want you to see me and to see that sin and link us together. So I'm going to do whatever I need to do to clear my name. That's evidence number two. Evidence number three now really starts to get to your heart. What indignation? That word means anger and hatred. If you're not seeing this balanced in the grace of Christ, then you're seeing worldly sorrow. Because godly sorrow gets furious when you see your sin. And they're not furious at the person who tempted them. They're not furious at the boss that passed over them for promotion, and so they responded in slander towards their boss. They're furious at themselves. They're angry at themselves. They hate their sin that they committed. They hate the shame that their sin brought on themselves and the damage that it caused to other people. It breaks their heart. It's not anger that you were caught. It's not anger that your sin is exposed. It is anger directed at yourself for sinning in the first place. That's godly sorrow. That's mourning. That's grief. Evidence number four. Now, parents, by the way, this is a brilliant, brilliant way to understand if your children are truly repentant. Wives and husbands, this is a brilliant way to understand if your spouse is truly repentant or if your friend is truly repentant. Listen, best of all, if you are truly repentant. 
That's why we're given this in the scriptures. Number four, evidence. What fear? Meaning, what realization that your sin was ultimately against God. This is why David, who had an affair with Bathsheba, gets her pregnant, kills her husband, or sets up her husband's death, could say in Psalm 51, against you, you only have I sinned. And we're sitting here scratching our heads going, wait a minute, you had an affair. You arranged a guy's murder. How can you say against you, you only? What that means is this. He saw his sin towards God so great, so grievous, that everybody else's paled in comparison. Because every single sin that you and I commit has a Godward direction. You will never sin horizontally without sinning vertically. It's always a vertical sin. So it's that realization that your sin was ultimately against God, not towards the person that you gossiped about. Yes, that too, but it was most grievously against God. And the result will be to take a flippant attitude and turn it to a reverent attitude. It's going to put a heart of renewed worship in you, and you're going to lift up God in his holiness, and you're going to rip your heart in half, and you're going to move to the cross for forgiveness. That's what godly sorrow does. Fifth evidence. Paul says, what longing. It's the overwhelming desire to see the relationship that sin broke restored. That there would be nothing that lies between you and another. Not another person, not a thing, not a habit, not a sin full of temptation or a temptation that takes you to sin. Nothing that's going to stand between you and God. This is if your computer is leading you to sin, you get rid of it or you move it into the front room where everybody can see it. If your mouth is moving you to sin, you get accountability and you confess it to the person of whom you gossip. You want to learn to stop gossiping and slandering? Then go to the people that you gossiped and slander and confess to them. Believe me, it's going to do more than anything else to teach you to stop doing it. Number six, what zeal. It's an intense love, and when it's zeal for God, it is a hatred of anything that dishonors his name. It's a renewing of your desire to honor him and protect his reputation. It's an intense longing to do nothing that would tarnish the glory of God. That's what zeal is. That's part and parcel of godly sorrow. It is woven into it. And finally, Paul says, what punishment. And this is so spectacular. Because he says, when godly mourning, godly sorrow is real, it will in the end seek justice. And you will deal with it rightly. And the person will no longer, you will no longer protect yourself. You will accept whatever might come. And if you stole money five years ago and God pricks your heart and drives you into grief over it and you flee to the cross, what he's going to say from the cross is go back and make restitution. And what punishment is going to be in you that says, I will do this no matter what the cost to me is. I will make it right. And Paul ends 
by saying that all seven of these must be present in godly sorrow. Not just one or two, all seven of them. And when they are, it will lead to comfort in the state of being blessed. So what is the second beatitude? Let me sum it up. And it's on the screen so you can see it. Here's what Jesus is saying in a paraphrased manner. What divine joy and perfect happiness is possessed by those who see their sin and grieve deeply and confess. For they shall have their sins forgiven and forgotten. Their hearts will be filled with courage and minds with new and right thoughts. And their faith will be fanned into a flame. And they are re-invited back to the banquet of fellowship. That's what it means. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now let me end with this. What's your takeaway? Well, let me speak to two different people that are here. The non-believer first and the Christian second. And you know who you are. I don't, you do. Maybe you came to church today with a strong sense of mourning over your sin, and you do not know what to do with it. Because nothing you've ever tried works. You can't get rid of this, these pangs of guilt. You've tried ignoring it, you've tried drowning it out, but nothing works. You feel it just raising your soul. That is God's gracious invitation to you. And he's telling you, he's inviting you to come to Jesus, who died and was raised to life to forgive you and to give you eternal life so that you could be forgiven and be blessed by his comfort. If you've not yet come to Jesus, then you cannot experience the blessing of his comfort. And he will withhold it as a means to drive you to Jesus. And if he's doing that to you now, today is a day of your salvation. And there is no magical prayer. Just cry out to him. Confess that you're a sinner and ask him to save you, to forgive you, and to teach you how to live in his blessing. But Christian, let me speak to you as I close. Maybe you are a believer. Maybe you're caught up in the grip of sin. Maybe you've not been able to break it. It's eating you up inside. It's robbing you of joy. You try and pray, but you see it. You see what that guilt and that sin, it's, it's between you and God. Like I told you earlier, you can't get around it. You can't get above it. You can't get below it. And the only way to God is through it, and you've got to confess it to get to him. And what's being withheld from you is the joy of your salvation, the comfort of being one and in right relationship with God. And that grief that you're experiencing is given to you. It's increased by God himself to turn you from your sin and to turn you to him. And it's time to take some specific actions. It's time to confess. It's time to find somebody and admit to them that you're not who they think. You don't have your life together and you're struggling with some pretty serious stuff. And it's time to get somebody to step into your life and help hold you accountable. It's time to take the steps that you know you need to take to get rid of that sin and to find that comfort again. Which are you? Are you the unbeliever that's not yet come to Christ, but God is drawing you and you're miserable? 
today's the day? Or are you the believer that has already come to Christ, but you put a sin between you and him, and it is robbing you of life and joy, and your heart is breaking? Well, let it break towards the cross and confess it and get somebody that can step into your life and help. Amen? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let's pray.